1 Kings chapter 17. I thought what we would do for the next few weeks is study the life of Elijah. I've just always been fascinated by the life of Elijah and his protege, Elisha. And we're going to take about four weeks and look at four major episodes in the life of Elijah and learn from those episodes. And we get through with that, we may go on and look at Elisha too because he's got some pretty cool things happening in his life as well. But uh, there's so much that happens in Elijah's life that teaches us about God, teaches us about our purpose, teaches us about what God's doing in the world, what our role is in that. Uh, just so much in his life story, and it's fascinating, and it's powerful. And so for the next three or four weeks, we're going to study the life of Elijah. Sound good? Okay, all right, okay, good. I hope it sounds good, that's what we're doing. I don't have a plan B, so we're doing Elijah. Like it or not, you're getting some Elijah, okay? Uh, but I think, you'll, I think you'll enjoy this uh, study. Uh, I don't think I've ever taught this at Longview Point. I have taught through Elijah's life, and I spoke to some missionaries at a, um, a cluster meeting in Europe. We went as a church and provided child care for the missionary families, for their kids, and I had an opportunity to speak to uh, the, the missionary couples, and I, I taught through the life of Elijah. And so uh, it's, a, it's a really powerful study. 1 Kings chapter 17, let me pray, and then we will jump right in studying this man of God. Father, we come to you tonight in Jesus' name, and we are very grateful, Lord, for your presence in our lives. We're, we're grateful, Lord, that because of Jesus we can call you Father. We're grateful, Lord, that you have spoken to us. We have your word to learn from and live by. And, uh, Lord, I just pray that you would work in our midst with power. Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the truths of Scripture, and not just see them, but live them. Lord, obey them. We don't want to just be hearers of the Word. We want to be doers of the Word. So, Lord, make that happen uh, in our lives, um, by your grace and for your glory. And I pray, not only for what goes on in this room tonight, but I pray for all the different ministries that are happening tonight, preschool ministry, children's ministry, uh, student ministry, uh, men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies, our uh, worship choir. There's a lot of things happening tonight, and I just pray that there would be a, a tangible um, touch of your hand on our ministry, Father, that we would see uh, good things happen. Uh, we would see your power in our midst, and we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to give you a little bit of historical background so that you understand uh, what's happening here uh, in 1 Kings chapter 17, so you understand the historical setting uh, in which we first find Elijah on the scene. We need to go all the way back to King Saul. You remember King Saul was the first king of uh, Israel, God's people, uh, demanded a king. If you remember, I preached through 1 Samuel, and they wanted a king like all the other nations had, and the Lord said, this is not best for you. It's best that I'm your king, that I just speak to you through a prophet. They said, no, we want a king like all the other nations. And so God said, even though it's not best for you, I'll give you what you want. And so God gave them uh, their first king, and he named the first king. His name was Saul. And Saul did a couple of good things, but then he began to disobey the Lord, and he basically went insane, uh, driven uh, to that point because of his jealousy over David and and Saul did not finish well. Well, after Saul, uh, God 
raised up the next king. His name was David. The Lord called David a man after my own heart. And David prepared, God prepared David for that role as king. And so David reigned. And David uh, made some, re- some, some really critical mistakes in his, in his life. Uh, but he also reigned well as a king and, and led Israel to great prosperity and uh, great expansion during his time. After David, his son Solomon reigned over Israel. So for well over 100 years, Israel was uh, led by either Saul, David, or Solomon. Those three guys reigned over Israel for over 100 years. But after Solomon died, everything went haywire. You can read about this earlier in 1 Kings. He had a son named Rehoboam, and Rehoboam had some older, wiser men counseling him, and he had his young buddies counseling him. And it came time to decide how he was going to tax the people. And the, uh, the old wise men said, Listen, your father Solomon overtaxed the people, and if you, if you alleviate some of those taxes, the people will love you for it. But his young buddy said, No, let's live it up. You need to tax them. Ta- tax them more so we can have more stuff to play with. We can make your kingdom greater. And they encouraged uh, Rehoboam not to, uh, uh, not to lift the taxes, but to increase the taxes. And that's what Rehoboam did. And the, the, the nation uh, revolted against him. And what happened was a civil war broke out. And as a result of that civil war, Israel, God's people, divided into two kingdoms. Known as the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. As you read through 1 Kings, read through Chronicles... The northern kingdom, after the civil war, is commonly referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom is commonly referred to as Judah. So when you're reading through this narrative, you see Israel, talking about the northern kingdom, which were ten tribes. And when you see Judah, it's talking about the southern kingdom, which was Judah and Benjamin. And that's the basic breakdown of the kingdom. This division, this division of the northern and southern kingdom held until both kingdoms fell to foreign invaders. They both rebelled against God, and the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrian Empire, and the southern kingdom, Judah, fell to... Do anybody know who they fell to? I want to guess what empire overthrew the, the, the southern kingdom. Babylonians, led, led by Nebuchadnezzar. And so they both met a terrible fate, uh, a terrible end, because they rebelled against God. Now... Think of this in your mind, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. I want to give you just a little bit of background about these two kingdoms. From the beginning of the division until their captivity, Judah, the southern kingdom, had 17 rulers. Everybody got that? 17 kings. Eight of these followed the Lord. Nine were wicked and didn't follow God. So you'll have some bright spots when you're reading about the southern kingdom. When you're reading about Judah, they had some, some good things happening, some good kings that led them to great reform and great revival, which also has some very wicked kings in the southern kingdom. So about half and half. The northern kingdom, nation of Israel, as they're called in the Bible, from the division of captivity, had 19 kings. Listen to this. All of them were wicked. There were no bright spots. Every king in the northern kingdom was wicked. And that's important to keep in the back of your mind because this is where Elijah does his ministry in the northern kingdom. He's doing his ministry in the midst of great wickedness. Now, King Ahab was the seventh king of the northern kingdom. Everybody with me so far? He was king number seven out of 19. 
And we see a little bit about him at the end of chapter 16. Look in uh, 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. Again, this is context, help you understand the historical setting in which Elijah lived. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. So pretty long reign. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So every king in the northern kingdom was wicked, and the, the six kings before him were wicked, but he was more wicked than any of them. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So she married, he married this woman who was a Baal worshiper, and he began to worship her false god. He began to worship Baal, just pure, ungodly wickedness. Look at verse 32. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah, Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel the Bethelite built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abram, his firstborn. Set up his gates with the loss of the youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So gives us a little bit of background about Ahab. He was a wicked dude. How many of you know who R.G. Lee is? Raise your hand if you know R.G. Lee. He was two pastors before Adrian Rogers. There's one pastor between Adrian Rogers and R.G. Lee, and R.G. Lee was a pastor of Bellevue for, I think, something like 30-plus years, and he was well-known for preaching a sermon titled Payday Someday. He preached that sermon over 1,200 times. Anybody here ever heard the sermon Payday Someday? Okay. If you haven't heard that sermon, I want to just encourage you, go to Google and type Payday Someday, R.G. Lee, and it'll bring up an old video of him. He wears a white suit, okay, you can't, you can't mistake, he wears a white suit, and you need to listen Take some, fix a cup of coffee, put your phone away, turn the TV off, and just listen to that sermon, Payday Sunday. It's about Ahab and Jezebel and how wicked they were. Uh, as a matter of fact, he calls, in that sermon, he calls Ahab the vile toad sitting on the throne of Israel. How would you like to be called a vile toad? And he called Jezebel a coiling adder, an, a snake. With her bejeweled fingers, that's what he says. So it's a great sermon. So you need, to, you need to listen to that sermon. It is a powerful sermon about Ahab and Jezebel and how their sins came back to get them in the end. Payday someday. Uh, that's the setting. That's the historical setting. The nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, was living under great wickedness, great darkness. And that's when we see Elijah come on the scene. In the midst of this wickedness, Elijah burst onto the scene. Look what it says there in Chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite, first time we see him mentioned, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And so, Elijah bursts on the scene to give Ahab, this wicked king, a message from God, a message of judgment. It's interesting how the end of chapter 16, you see the wickedness of Ahab. Then in chapter 17, you see the righteous preaching of Elijah. Like what J. Oswald Sanders writes, he writes, Like a meteor, he flashed across, Elijah flashed across the inky blackness of Israel's spiritual night. I like that. Israel was living in darkness, but he was like a meteor flashing across the sky. Now just a couple quick things about Elijah before we get into some things he learned in his encounter with God. 
First of all, let's talk about his name, Elijah. That name means something. El is the term for God. Uh, the I in his name means my or mine. And then the Jah is Lord or Jehovah. Uh, it's how it would be translated. So it means something like this. The Lord is my God. Or my God is Jehovah. That's what his name means. Elijah. My God is Jehovah. And so you can imagine this guy walking up to Ahab, who's a worshiper of Baal, and he says, there's not going to be any rain. Judgment is coming, Ahab. And he walks away, and Ahab says, who's this guy? Elijah, my God is Jehovah. Imagine that, that in-your-face kind of meaning as he realized his name means my God is the Lord, my God is Jehovah. In the midst of all the pagan worship came a man whose name represented the one true God. So that was his name, Elijah, the Lord is my God, my God is Jehovah. Let's talk about his land a little bit. Look what it says there in verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who is of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab. He calls him here a Tishbite. Tishbe was in Gilead. It was not a well-known place. Basically, Tishbe in Gilead was in the sticks. You might say like this. Elijah was from the country. He, he, was, a, he was a country boy. I, I like to say, uh, Claire and I both grew up outside of town, uh, but Claire grew up farther outside of town than I did. I like to say that Claire was country before country, wasn't, before country was cool. And, and I, I lived about 10 minutes outside of town. She lived, way on, she lived on a dirt road. No one else lived on the dirt road. I mean, she lived way out in the sticks. I like to kid her about that. You can tell her, I heard you live way out in the country growing up. And uh, anyway... Uh, but that's kind, of, that's kind of what Elijah was like. He lived way out in the sticks. He was from the country, not a well-known place. And yet we see God is going to choose to use him in remarkable ways to speak truth into the life of power, the life of the wicked king Ahab. Now, there are five things that Elijah experienced in his encounter with God. Five things Elijah experienced in his encounter with God. I want to walk you through these five things. And we're going to make application to our lives as we think about our encounter with God, our experience with God. And you just kind of walk along with me. I left you room for notes. I'm going to say more than just those blanks. And so you have some room there to hopefully write some things down as I go. But here's the first thing that Elijah experienced in his encounter with God. He experienced the purpose of God. The purpose of God. There in verse 1, he says to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall not be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And so he comes with a direct proclamation from the Lord, uh, speaking to Ahab, a message of judgment because of his wickedness. So what was Elijah's purpose? We don't know how God called him. God found him out in the country, out in the sticks. And he found this guy, and he said to him, I want you to go to Ahab, and I want you to say this to Ahab. Tell him that judgment is coming. So Elijah's purpose was to, listen, stand courageously for God as his messenger in the midst of great spiritual darkness. His purpose was to stand courageously for God as his messenger in the midst of great spiritual darkness. That was the purpose that God had for Elijah's life. I want you to go and speak truth to power, speak judgment to power, to speak judgment to the wicked, uh, Baal-worshipping Ahab, to stand courageously for God as his messenger in the midst of great spiritual darkness. Now, here's the question. Do we have anything to learn from that? 
Because not everyone's called to be a, a prophet, right? Not everyone's called to, 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 to preach. But do we, can we learn something of this purpose that Elijah had? Well, I believe, just like Elijah, we are called to stand for the truth of God in the midst of great spiritual darkness. Just like Elijah. As a matter of fact, uh, turn to Philippians with me. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now that's not really part of what I want you to see, but I just include that verse because it's always good to be reminded. Amen? Verse 15. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked, perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Isn't that interesting? Very similar purpose to what Elijah's purpose was. You're going to be light in darkness, is what God is saying through Paul to the church in Philippi, and by extension saying to us, I want you to hold fast the word of life. I want you to hold fast the truth, so that against the great backdrop of darkness, you shine brightly in the world. That's our purpose, right? To shine brightly in the darkness. So you need to understand that. Sometimes when... We look around at the encroaching darkness in our nation. We can get discouraged. But I want you to know, our nation didn't have anything on northern Israel. The northern kingdom. I mean, we're talking about blatant, Baal, Asherah worship, child sacrifice. I mean, there's some, there's some, some really dark stuff with the nation of Israel, the, the northern kingdom. There's some dark, dark stuff in America. But guess what? It gives us an opportunity to be light, Right? And God expects us to be light. He expects us to stand courageously for truth in the midst of great spiritual darkness. And so here's the question. Is your life illuminating? Is there a a distinctiveness about your life? Is there something that looks different than the, the vast darkness that is all around us? Or do you just blend in to what's going on in our country? what's going on in our nation, what's going on in our world. Our lives should look distinctive. Here's what Jesus said over in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He said, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus said, if we let people see our good works, if we let people see us living according to truth, our lives have the potential to move others closer to the Father. Let them see your good works, that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. So our job is to be distinctive. Our job is to look different. We, uh, this is, I don't know, sometime last year, we had a, a young lady who had been visiting our church. She was a youth, and her sister had been coming, and her sister was a follower of Christ. And, and, and one, one day after the service, this young lady came forward, and she said, I want to be saved. And so uh, she sat down with a, with a staff member and, and uh, began to talk through uh, what the Lord was doing in her life. And here's what she said. She said, I've noticed a difference in my sister, and I want what she has. Isn't that good? 
I've noticed it for somebody. I want what she has. There's something, it's light, it's distinctive. It, it, it stands out against the backdrop of darkness. And whatever it is, that's what I want. And she gave her life to Christ. And so we want to provoke that same sort of feeling in others. I don't know what it is, but they, they're, something's different about them. And I want what they have. And so we see in Elijah the purpose of God. And our purpose is very similar, to shine as lights in the darkness. But secondly, as you turn back to 1 Kings 17, I want us to think about the protection of God. Elijah experienced the protection of God. Look what it says in 1 Kings 17, verse 2. He gives Ahab this message. It's not going to rain. There's going to be no dew. It's going to be dry. Drought, famine. Then verse 2. The word of the Lord came to him saying... Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I've commanded the ravens to provide for you there. And so the Lord knew it was about to get bad for Elijah. Because you don't just walk up to a king and say, it's not going to rain, there's not going to be any dew, judgment of God's coming, and, and things aren't going to get difficult. I mean, Ahab would, would be filled with wrath at this statement and would probably want to take his life. We know his, his wife wanted to take his life, wanted to take Elijah's life at a later time. And so God already had a plan in place to protect the messenger. Okay, I want you to go tell Ahab it's not going to rain, there's not going to be any dew, and then I want you to go to this brook. I'm going to show you where it is, and you're going to go there, and I'm going to protect you in that spot. And so Elijah experienced not only the purpose of God, he experienced the protection of God. God had a plan to protect his messenger, to protect his light in the darkness, to protect his meteor streaking across the inky darkness of Israel's spiritual night. It's important to remember that we are in need of God's protection. I, I like what Ralph Waldo Emerson writes. He writes, For nonconformity the world whips you with its displeasure. Think about that. When you don't conform to the ways of the world, when you don't do what everybody else is doing, you don't talk the way everyone else is talking, you don't think the way everyone else is thinking, when you start to do something different, when you begin to color outside the lines and let your light shine, people will not like it. Just like Ahab would not like it when Elijah spoke the truth of God. People will not like it when you let your light shine. Paul said this over in 2 Timothy. He said, all, listen, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Think about that for a minute. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Wow! So we need to understand, if we're really going to live for the Lord, we need His protection. And we need to understand that God has our back. God's a protecting God. It's important to remember that when we live for the Lord, when we let our light shine, we are in God's hand, and nothing can touch our lives unless God allows it, right? Now, how does God protect us? I want to give you at least three ways that God carries out protection for us. The first is angels. Angels. We don't talk a lot about angels in, in churches these days. We need to. As a matter of fact, I'm working on a, a study in my mind that I want to do on Wednesday night called Unseen, where we talk about angels and demons and the spiritual realm. We'll get to that one of these days. But 
But God uses angels to protect us. The Bible is very clear on this. Turn to Psalm 34 with me. Psalm 34. Great verse to mark in your Bible. The Bible says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. That's pretty clear. And an angel of the Lord camps around those who fear him and he rescues them. And so God will use angels as ministering spirits, Hebrews says, to, to watch over his people. And so I believe that God uses angels to protect us. Now, we don't see that. And so we can often take this for granted. We don't actually see angels coming to our rescue, do we? So because we don't see it, we don't, we don't think it's real or it's not that big of a deal or it's not that important. But just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not real, right? Just because it's unseen, I mean, it's real. Angels are just as real as us sitting in this room. We can see each other, so we know we're real, but the angels in the supernatural realm, they're real too. God created them, and God has a purpose for them, and God uses angels to protect us. 2 Kings 6, the story of Elisha, Elijah's protege. He is uh, being attacked or being stalked by the Aramean army. Elisha kept telling the king of Israel, hey, listen, the king of, of Aram is going to come attack you. He's going to come attack you right here. He was giving away their battle plan because God gave him the insight to know what their battle plan was. So the king of Aram said, he's giving away our battle plan. Let's go get him. So they're coming, this big army, to come and kill Elisha. And Elisha's there in this town with his servant. And his servant's saying, what are we going to do? The, 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 the army's coming. They're marching on us. And Elisha says, open his eyes, Lord. And he opens his eyes, and the servant sees all around the surrounding hillside chariots of fire and warriors of fire. He sees the angels that are there to protect. And then God blinds the army, and they, they do no harm to Elisha or to his servant. Again, his servant needed to see the reality of those angels, but those angels were there. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could just see for a moment what those ministering angels look like and, and how they're protecting us and watching over us. And, and we won't know this out of heaven, but I believe when we get to the other side and we get to heaven, maybe the Lord will show us the role angels had in our day-to-day -day lives in protecting those who live faithfully for Him, those who fear Him. And so God protects us, there's no question, through angels. I got it. Should I share this story? I'll share one story. I had a professor in seminary, Dr. Bud Bickers, and he uh, spent uh, many years as a missionary in Malawi, in Africa, and uh, just, it was in the, 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 the good old days of missions before there was, you know, a lot of the, the technology we have today. I mean, he would go and not be able to talk to his family for, for you know, months and months as they go to this, this you know, this uh, bush-type area and live, and uh, he told the story about uh, uh, a man that came to Christ and became a pastor of a church. And he, said he was having a lot of influence in uh, a village in Malawi. And uh, the people did not want him to have this influence. And, and witch doctors and other folks did not want him to have this influence. So they kept threatening his life. And, and, and Dr. Bickers and others were saying, we need to get you out of here. They're going to, they're going to kill you. And the, 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 the pastor said, no, I, I want to be here. I want to be with my people. I want to stay here. And 
And one night, uh, Dr. Bickers got word that, uh, that they were going to go to this man's house and, and kill this pastor. And so he goes with a group of men to this house. When he gets there, no one's there. The pastor's inside, thinking he's about to die. He's kind of there, ready for his, to, meet his, to meet his death, to meet his demise, because he knew those people were coming to kill him. They had surrounded his house, but no one was there. And, and, and they find one, one man outside, kind of cowering behind a bush, shaking. And they begin to ask him some questions. And the man tells him, we, we came to kill this pastor. We came to kill him tonight. But we could not because of the guards he had. And they said, what guards? They said, do you have guards? I didn't have guards. There were no guards. I believe God sent angels. And he let those, that band of murderers see those angels. And they were scared uh, to death. And they left. And the pastor's life was spared. God uses angels to protect us. And that's an awesome, awesome thought. Secondly, God protects us through providence. In other words, he sometimes just works situations out in a way that we're protected. Let me show you an example of this from Esther. Turn to the book of Esther. Keep going in your Bible. Get First uh, and Second uh, Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, then Esther. Look what it says in Esther chapter two. Talking about Esther's uncle, the Jew Mordecai. Esther chapter 2, verse 19. The Bible says, When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people. In other words, she she didn't make known that she was a Jew. Even as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther did what Mordecai told her she had done when under his care. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thon and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King uh, Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows. It was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. And so, you get the deal here. The king chose Esther to be his queen. She was a Jewish girl. She had an uncle named Mordecai. Mordecai was standing outside of the palace trying to get sight of Esther and communicate with her. And he just happened to hear of this murder plot. So he told Esther. Esther told the king. They investigated, arrested these two guys, and killed them. The king's life was spared. Pretty cool, right? Now, after this chapter, we see there is a man in the kingdom named Haman, and Haman hated the Jews. And Haman hated Mordecai. And Haman wanted to kill Mordecai. Now keep that in mind. Now is God going to protect Mordecai? He does. Look how he does it. Look over with me in chapter 6. You look at the end of chapter 5, Mordecai had built gallows to hang, to hang, I mean, Haman had built gallows to hang Mordecai on. During that night, the king could not sleep, so he gave an order to, the, to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Asheris. The king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So the king said, who is in the court? 
Because here's the deal. King Kent sleeps. says, read me some books about my kingdom. They read him the story of Mordecai saving his life by reporting the two guys plotting to kill him. Everybody got it so far? So look what happens next. It gets even better. So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman, the guy who wanted to kill Mordecai, had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows. So he's coming in to tell the king, I'm about to hang this guy named Mordecai. And the king would have no reason to protect Mordecai. He didn't know anything about him. He would say, okay, Haman, you're my, you know, you're my chief first officer, so yeah, go ahead and kill him. But look what it says in verse 5. The king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Then Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let him bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. Let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim uh, proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. So Haman's saying, hey, man, play it up big, because Haman thinks he's the guy that's going to be honored. Look in verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, you think the Bible's not funny? It's about to get funny right here. The king said to Haman, take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square, and proclaimed before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Thus, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home mourning with his head covered. Isn't that funny? Haman's coming to kill Mordecai, but through the providence of God, God had it worked out, so the king heard the story of Mordecai saving his life, and instead of the, the king giving permission for Mordecai to be killed, the king had a plan to honor Mordecai and made Haman do it. Now, is that coincidence? Is all that just coincidence? No, that's the providence of God. God's working behind the scenes. You know, the book of Esther, God's not mentioned. you know that? His name's not mentioned in this book. And yet his fingerprints are everywhere. He's working behind the scenes. And he's working to bring about protection for the Jews, protection for Mordecai. And so God protects us through angels. And God protects us through his providence. We don't always know what God's doing, but God is working behind the scenes, bringing everything together. And often he's doing that to protect us from harm. There's a third way that God protects us. Not only angels and providence, but sometimes just through direct intervention. Direct intervention. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 7, a foreign army comes to attack uh, the city of Jerusalem. They surround it. Things are looking bleak. People are starving to death. But one day, four lepers are sitting outside of the city, and they say, you know what, we're about to die. So let's just go at the Syrians. Let's go to the Syrians and see if they got anything to offer. What are they going to do, kill us? We're going to die here of starvation. So let's just go see if we can strike a deal with the Syrians. When they go to the Syrian camp, which has surrounded the city, was laying siege to the city, the Syrians are gone. Their food's there, their horses are there, their clothes are there. Everything's there, but the people are gone. Because it says that God scared them in the night and made the Syrian army flee. God just directly, supernaturally intervened to defeat the Syrian army, to, to drive them out of there so the city could be spared. Pretty awesome, right? 
And sometimes God would just directly just intervene by his power, some supernatural way, to spare someone from certain harm, from certain danger. And so that's the protection of God. And we see this in Elijah's life. Elijah, I want you to speak truth to Ahab, but then I've got a plan to protect you. You'll be okay. I've got you in my hand. I will watch over you. So we need to understand that God is a protecting God. God always protects us. He holds us in his hand. Listen to me. If anything does touch our life, it's because God allowed it. And if God allowed it, he allowed it for a reason and a purpose, right? He has a plan for that. He's going to use it for his glory and use it for our good. So we can just trust him. He's got us in his hand, the protection of God. There's a third, a third thing that Elijah experienced in his encounter with God. He, he experienced the purpose of God and the protection of God. But third, he experienced the provision of God. Look what happens back in 1 Kings 17 as he goes to this brook. God told him to go, 1 Kings 17. It says in verse 5, He went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. It happened after a while, the brook dried up. But there was a time where Elijah is by the brook. He gets all the water he needs. Ravens are bringing him breakfast. They're bringing him dinner. He has everything that he needs. God is providing for Elijah. God wanted Elijah to learn that he was his source, that he was the one that would provide for him, even through difficult, scary times. He wanted him to learn to trust the Lord for provision in his life. Now, the idea that God provides for us is a, is a difficult lesson for us to learn, just like Elijah. Sometimes it's hard for us to learn that God really does provide for us. And what happens is we start looking for other things to be our source. Or, or, or other people to be our source instead of God being our source. God uses means. God uses all sorts of things. But God is the one that provides for us. We need to realize that. Philippians 4.19 says that God will supply all of our needs according to His riches in glory. And so God is a providing God. And we need to trust Him, even through difficult times, that God will provide what we need. Elijah learned that lesson. There's a fourth thing that Elijah experienced here. He experienced... The uh, purpose, protection, provision of God. But fourth, he experienced the preparation of God. Look in verse 7. This is interesting. He's there by the brook, all the water he needs. Ravens are bringing him food. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So here Elijah is being provided for, and all of a sudden the brook dries up. There is no water. Now, why do you think God let that happen? I mean, God could have continued to let the brook flow, right? God could have just made water spring up from the ground. When we see the nation of Israel in the wilderness under Moses' leadership, he just speaks to a rock or strikes a rock and water comes out of the rock, right? So, I mean, God could have provided a rock to, to give him the water. Why does the brook dry up? Well, I believe, I want you to hear me carefully, the brook dried up because God was getting ready to teach him some things about himself. The brook was a place of comfort and security. And listen to me, God didn't want him to fall in love with the brook. He wanted Elijah to be totally dependent upon him. Elijah needed to learn that lesson. He was being prepared by God. No matter what you're going through, even when I provide for you, don't get comfortable. Don't fall in love with my provision. Trust me. 
And that's what Elijah learns here by the brook. The brook dries up. And so, once again, Elijah sees his need for God. His, his, he sees his dependence upon the Lord. This is the preparation of God. Now, I want you to hear me very carefully. I think there's some application here, some entering application. Sometimes we can get really, really comfortable with life, can't we? Matter of fact, we, we, we don't have to try. We drift towards comfort. We choose things that are most comfortable in our lives. And we, 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 we chase after comfort in our lives. We get very, very comfortable. Sometimes, I believe, God will take the comfort away or take something very valuable away from you to remind you of how much you need Him. You ever thought about that? God will take something very valuable, very comfortable, something that you love, He'll take it away from you to remind you of how much you need Him. By the way, that may be what God's doing in our nation. We may be heading towards some pretty serious collapse. And maybe when we lose the things that make us so comfortable, we'll remember how much we need God. Perhaps, maybe, you think? Hopefully. We'll come to terms with the Lord before that happens. But we see here that God is teaching him some things about himself. Don't fall in love with the brook. Don't fall in love with comfort. Don't fall in love with security. Keep trusting me. Keep depending upon me. He needed this preparation in his life. God was preparing him for what he had for him. Because Elijah was about to, we're going to study it in the next few weeks. Elijah was about to go through some serious stuff, some scary stuff, and he needed to remember that God was worthy of his trust, even in difficult times, the preparation of God. And then fifth, Elijah experienced the purpose of God, the protection of God, the provision of God, the preparation of God, but he also experienced the power of God. The power of God. And we see the power of God here in two different situations. First of all, we see the power of continual supply. Look what the Bible says there in verse 8. So Elijah doesn't have the brook anymore. How's he going to survive? The word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he, he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said... As the Lord lives, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. Behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. So this is the one that, that God says is going to provide for Elijah. He shows up and says, I need some food and water. I don't have anything. We're about to die. I wonder what Elijah's thinking in the back of his mind. But God told Elijah what to say. Look what happens next. Elijah said to her, do not fear, go, do as you have said, but bring, make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me, and afterward you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus is the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke through Elijah. So this is a miracle. God's, God has suspended the, the laws of nature. He has, he has supernaturally stepped in to the situation to provide for Elijah, to provide for this widow, and to provide for her son. Pretty incredible. 
Every time she goes and gets oil, there's oil there replenished from the day before. Every time she goes to get flour, there's flour there. It never gets, she never gets to the bottom. God just continually uh, supplies the need during a drought. Remember, there's a drought going on. And yet, she has all the flour, all the oil that she needs. This is the power of God, the power of continual supply. God is working supernaturally to provide for Elijah. And Elijah's learning all this, right? Elijah knows this is happening. He's seeing the power of God firsthand. He would need to remember God's power for what was next. But also, we see the power of resurrection. Look in verse 17. Now it came about after these things, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. He said to her, give me your son. And he took him from the, her bosom and carried her up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. He called the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? He stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray you let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. Elijah sees firsthand God's power to resurrect this boy who had died. He sees God do this firsthand, working through his life. Elijah experiences the power of God. Before Elijah, I want you to hear me carefully, before Elijah went to confront Ahab again, which he was about to do, it's about to get really interesting, God wanted him to understand all that he was able to do through him. He said again, before Elijah was to confront Ahab again, God wanted him to understand all that he was able to do through him. Before he sent him on this really dangerous, scary mission, he wanted him to remember how powerful he was. Remember, Elijah, when times are dark, remember when you're surrounded by Baal worshipers, remember when times are bleak, remember I'm the one that kept the oil and flour replenished. I'm the one that raised that dead boy to life. I'm the all-powerful God of the universe. You can trust me. It's going to be interesting when we see Elijah have this confrontation with the prophets of Baal that he calls on the power of God. He calls for fire to fall. And I believe he did that in response to what he learned here. And so Elijah learned something of the power of God. He experienced the power of God in his life. And, and we need to understand that God is all-powerful. And we can trust Him. Whatever God has for us, He will give us what we need to accomplish what He has for us uh, to do. Before I left for, um, for India, I prayed something like this. I said, I said Lord, I, I would love to go over there and just see something supernatural. I mean, just to see you just do something that just can't be explained, and we know it's you, and, and you know, something like the book of Acts. I'd love to see something like the book of Acts happen, you know, when I go over there. So, God, would you, just, would you let me see something supernatural? That's that kind of my prayer, and, and I didn't pray it a lot, but I just, that's kind of the back of my mind, and we went over there, and we went to the first church to do some training with the, the, the people in the church, and it was good. I mean, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a neat time with this church, and we went to another a Bible school train and I, and we spoke to the folks there. Then we went, um, we went back to the city where we were staying, and uh, the missionary we were with 
told us a little bit of a backstory. He said, uh, he showed me a picture. He'd been taking pictures while we were speaking to this church. And I was praying uh, in this picture. I, I, was, I had my hand on the pastor, and I was praying for this, this little tiny house church in uh, Palachi, India. And uh, I was just praying for them, and, and, and he took a picture. And standing there about from, um, from me to second row there, it was this girl in white on her knees. Um, she had a white kind of dress on, and she was there on her knees. And he said, you see this girl uh, praying? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, you need to know this story about this girl. He said, last week, uh, she was uncontrollable. She was running around in fits of rage and anger, and, and she was just running around wildly. And, and the people in the church knew that this girl had an evil spirit, that something was going on there, something demonic was going on there, that was just controlling this girl's life and causing all sorts of, uh, of a scene and all these things. And so this church uh, prayed over her, and, and they prayed that God would, would work in her and, and deliver her and save her, and, 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 and something changed. I believe the Lord cast that spirit out of her life. And so when she was there at the church time when I was teaching and we were praying, we didn't even know anything had happened in her life. She was just normal, just sitting there listening. Uh, when we prayed, she got on her knees and prayed. And, uh, and, and so you know, the Lord said, hey, Wade, I'm working in India supernaturally. Uh, this girl, week before you got here, she was running around probably possessed by a demon spirit. Now she's sitting there listening to you teach about how to say the Bible. And when you pray, she got on her knees to pray to the same Lord you're praying to. That's pretty awesome, right? And just a reminder of the power of God. God is, God is at work. God is powerful. And we need to remember that because sometimes life can get difficult. Ministry can get hard. Um, things can be daunting. We need to remember that God is a God of all power. We can trust Him and we can serve Him with confidence as we uh, win the victory by His grace. And so that's some things about Elijah, just some kind of startup stuff. Before Elijah went through the big things coming up, he had to go through some learning processes. He needed to learn some things about God. We need to learn some things about God so that we will serve Him with confidence and trust Him and depend upon Him and know that He can use our lives for great things. 